0: So any good teacher knows that to get people to learn something, and I'm not saying just like rote learning where in one year, out the other, they can put it down on a test, but then they forget it the next week. I'm saying really learn and know something. You have to do at least two things. First, you have to instruct the student, obviously. You need to tell them what is true or what it is that they need to do. You need to tell them that. But second, you also have to show the student what to do. Think about it. Math, pe- math teachers, they don't just tell students how to do an algebraic equation. They'll tell them how to do it, but then they'll do examples on the chalkboard or the dry erase board, whatever, or smart board now. Um, but they, they do problems on the board to show the students how to actually do the problem. They give them examples. Coaches have sports players watch videos of people practicing the techniques that they want them to learn because they'll learn them better if they see what it looks like in practice. Even if you're starting a new job, job shadowing, seeing other people do the work that you're gonna be doing is an integral part of orientation in most jobs that you start these days. My point is we learn best not only when we're told what to do, But when we get to see what it looks like when it's done well or done right, we need examples, like I said. Our passage this morning, the passage that we're actually going to look at next week also, um, both show how Paul was a good teacher, how he remembered that and put that into practice in his own letters. A while back, just to kind of give a quick overview of where we're at in Philippians, a while back, Caleb preached on Philippians 1, verse 27. That verse was really the starting point of the arguments that he has been developing over the course of the weeks that we've gone through since then. All of chapter 2 is basically continuing to develop that, that verse. And he says, "'Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ.'" Then, a few verses later, in chapter two, verses one through four, Paul went into greater detail about what he meant by that. He calls us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And then, through the rest of chapter two, so far, he has elaborated on that thought. Um, So those were Paul's instructions to us. But like any good teacher, he wanted to provide examples too. So this week and next week, he's going to wrap up that instruction by showing us what he means. And he's doing that through Timothy and Epaphroditus, two men who exemplify the life that he calls us to, a humble life worthy of the gospel. He says in chapter 3, verse 17, we'll come back to this passage in the coming weeks but he says in that in that verse brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us well these two men that we're going to be looking at in the next two weeks are two people who he had in mind when he said that these are these are men that he wants us to imitate and to follow so like i said This morning, we're going to look at Timothy, and next week, we're going to look at Epaphroditus. At first glance, when we look at these two passages, they're going to seem like Paul's just letting the Philippians know what his travel plans are, but they're actually much more than that. He's sending these men to the Philippians and describing them in this letter specifically because they epitomize what the Philippians are trying to learn so that they can better learn what Paul is calling them to so keep that in mind as we look at the passage. We're gonna look at, specifically this morning, Philippians 2, verses 19 through 24. So if you haven't turned there, please do so now. If you got if you have one of the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 981. If you have one of the white ones, it's on page 637. So uh, please turn there now so that I can read that passage for us. Um, all right. God's word says this in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. This morning, I want us to look to Timothy as an example of living a joyful, gospel worthy life. And notice Paul's words there. He says he has no one like Timothy. In other words, Timothy is the example par excellence. It's, a, it's good for us to want to be like him. That's why Paul is describing him to us. That's why he's sending Timothy to the Philippians. Um, the Philippians had the benefit of getting to actually see him and be with him. We don't get that, unfortunately, They got to meet him. He came shortly after this letter got to them. We don't get to see him. This was 2,000 years ago. But Paul did explain why he was sending Timothy, and we do get to learn from that. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And notice that I didn't just say we want to look at him as an example of a gospel-worthy life. That is true, of course. That is the the idea that Paul is developing here. But Paul's point throughout the letter is that a gospel life is a joyful life. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning, that those two things go hand in hand. Timothy is not only an example of godliness worth following and imitating, but he is an example of a joyful life that we want to emulate as well. And I imagine you do want to be a joyful person. We all do. And so I want us to meditate on that and think about that this morning. So to do that, I want us to see three three things from Timothy's life. And these are gonna be my points this morning that we work through. Uh, The first one, we're gonna look at the object of his joy. Where Where is his joy coming from? What's he taking joy in? What are the practices of his joy Um, So how is Timothy, in a sense, living his life? And then finally, what is the ultimate source of that joy? And again, we'll, we'll get to what each of those things mean as we work our way through the text. But let's start by considering the object of Timothy's joy. And like I said just a moment ago, when I say the object of his joy, I mean, what's the thing that's making him happy? What is he doing to be joyful and that's really the golden question, right? That's a question we all ask ourselves. And that's a question every human being asks themselves. If you go to Barnes and Noble, you're gonna see shelf after shelf of books written to answer that very question. Self-help and self-care books all aim at helping us figure out and assess for ourselves what will make us happy so that we can pursue that and experience that happiness and self-fulfillment. The thing is, though, I doubt many of them say the same thing that Paul does in this passage. So let's look back at the passage to see what it is that he actually points out. Look with me at verse 19. He says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So first, Paul starts by saying that he wants to send Timothy as we'll see next week, Paul sent Epaphroditus first actually with this letter. So Epaphroditus was actually the one that brought and delivered this letter to the Philippians. But he also wanted to send Timothy. Why? Think about it. Don't forget, Paul was under arrest when he wrote this letter. Letter. Either he was in prison or he was under house arrest. It would be good for him to have friends around right now. And yet, he wanted to send Timothy, even though he had already sent someone with this letter, to be with the Philippians. Why? What was so extraordinary about Timothy that made Paul want to send him too? And the answer is right there in the next verse. And this points out what the object of his joy was. Look with me at verse 20. It says, For I have no one like him, Again, just stop and consider how significant that statement is. Paul is saying, this is my best man. There is no one that embodies this better than him. I commend him to you. And what does he say? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Do you see that? What sets Timothy apart, what makes him such a great example of a joyful gospel living is his concern for the Philippians welfare Paul even says in verse 22 that Timothy has proven his worth because of it do you see the the similarity in the language there in with verse um, 21 in chapter or 27 in, in chapter one so he says in verse uh, in verse 22 in chapter 2, but you know Timothy's proven worth. But then if you look back at chapter one, verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the worth that Timothy has proven. His gospel living is most clearly demonstrated through his concern for the Philippians' welfare. Paul said that at the, said at the beginning of chapter two that we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. That's what a life worthy of the gospel is, where we look not only to our own interests, but to others. And Timothy is doing exactly that. Now, don't overlook the significance of this. Paul is reinforcing a point that we so often forget, and this is probably the biggest challenge that we face when we consider a text like this. If you want to have lasting, deep joy, you've got to seek it outside of yourself. The object of Timothy's joy was the Philippians. It was his service to them, It was devoting his life for their well-being. It wasn't relaxing in front of the TV or a book. It wasn't a sport or a hobby. It wasn't the perfect job that he could find for himself. In other words, it wasn't what we ourselves so often turn to to make ourselves happy. Timothy's joy came from devoting himself to the well-being of others, A joyful person is a selfless person, a servant. It's someone who busies himself with the needs and cares of others. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that that sounds counterintuitive. But oftentimes, we are unhappy specifically because we spend too much time trying to make ourselves happy. That sounds weird, but it's true. A lot of the time we hinder our own joy because we're too focused on ourselves and trying to make ourselves joyful and happy. We get lost in trying to improve our own circumstances because that's what we think we need. But to find joy, we should be turning outwards, getting our minds off of ourselves and devoting our attention to helping those around us. The more joy you bring to others, the more joy you will feel yourself. And to know why, look with me at verse 21. In Philippians 2, verse 21, Paul says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So he has just said in verse 20 how he has no one like Timothy because Timothy is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. And then he goes on to say, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So one thing I'll point out is we don't know who the they is in this verse. We don't actually know. I mean, it's interesting because he says that so you think, oh, everyone else around him must be terrible or something like that. But obviously that's not the case because he also commends Epaphroditus immediately after this. So we don't know exactly who the they is that he's comparing Timothy to. But the point is that what sets Timothy apart from others is that he is concerning himself with the interests of Christ not himself but notice the difference there between verse 20 and 21 because in verse 20 Paul is pointing out that he's concerned with the welfare of who the Philippians but then in verse 21 he's talking about the interest that the fact that Timothy is devoting himself to not the interest of the Philippians but to the interests of Christ. So notice that this is huge because it means that when Timothy is concerning himself with the welfare of the Philippians, he is at the same time seeking the interests of Christ. They aren't opposing goals. They aren't mutually exclusive pursuits. That's why our humble service to others can bring us joy as well. Because as we serve them, We are serving Christ. We are serving our Lord. Redeemer, seeking the welfare of others rather than yourself is self-denial in one sense, but not in another. Think about it. Yes, it will mean that when you are devoting yourself to others, then you will be helping them even when you're tired. You will exhaust yourself for the sake of the people around you. It will mean you inconvenience yourself. It will mean that you forsake comfort a lot. It will mean encouraging people around you when you desperately want support and encouragement yourself. Yes, it will be self-denial in those ways. But here's the thing, that doesn't mean that it's without joy. And I'm sure you know that too. I'm sure you've experienced what I'm talking about. Think about a time, just pause for a moment, and think about a time when someone asked you to help them on short notice. Maybe the person texted a group of you, and you hoped so much that someone else would respond first to say that they would help out, because you didn't want to have to say yes yourself. Um, I don't know if you've been in that position. I have. I confess that. There's been times when I've been a part of group texts. Someone's asking for help, and I'm like, oh, I really hope someone else responds first. But then time goes by, um, and no one responds, and so I say yes. I say that I'll help out, even though I'd rather be sitting on the couch at home, not getting up and going out in the cold to maybe help, some, like, give someone a ride or watch their kids or maybe console someone when they've gotten bad news. Um, it's begrudging, service at first. But think about how you felt afterwards, after caring for that person and loving them and serving them. Think about how you felt afterwards. You probably felt joy because you were able to bless and serve someone in need. You made a difference in their life. You went home happy and satisfied. The the regrets that you were feeling at first for saying yes have just dissipated. You're glad you went to help. In that moment, your humility and service is not self-denial at all. Your service to that other person has served and blessed you as well, has provided you joy. We are designed to be like that. The thing is, though, that when we do things for ourselves, they bring instant gratification most of the time. That's why we're so inclined to do that rather than serve those around us. We want that instant gratification. We want that instant pleasure. And on the other hand, when we do things for others, the gratification is oftentimes delayed. It usually requires forsaking an immediate pleasure for the sake of a later one. So a lot of the times, we don't want to choose that. We don't want to choose the delayed joy. We want the immediate pleasure. But you guys, the gratification that comes from loving those around us is so much better than the immediate gratification that serving ourselves brings. We've gotta be able to believe that. I know you've experienced that. Trust that. It is richer. It is more lasting Timothy understood that and devoted his life to serving those around him. Even if it exhausted and drained him, he knew that it was worth it. Let's learn from his example. The object of his joy was the welfare of others. And because of that, his joy was real. And we settle for far less when we focus on ourselves. With that said, it's worth taking some time to look at what Timothy actually did for the Philippians. Um, If his joy came from concerning himself with their welfare, how do we do that? What does that look like in practice? And that's what I want to turn to for our second point. Now, I already mentioned the Philippians had the privilege of actually meeting and interacting with Timothy. He visited them. He did ministry with them. They got to see up close and personal what it looked like to devote oneself to the welfare of others, what that kind of humility and selflessness looks like. They got to see that in person. We don't get to, but we know, as Paul says in verse 22, that their relationship was a like father-like son kind of relationship. As they did ministry, Timothy shared Paul's passions and desires and goals They were of one spirit and mind, just as Paul called the Philippians to. So even if we don't know Timothy's specific practices, the ways in which he ministered to the Philippians, we can be sure that they matched up with ways that Paul calls us all to love one another in his letters. Therefore, I want us to get really practical for for this second point. I wanna point out a couple biblical practices for caring for others. And these can apply to any relationships in your life. They're things that you can practically do to count others as more significant than yourself. None of them are gonna be groundbreaking. You're gonna hear this list of things and you're gonna be like, obviously, Kyle. But the thing is, (laughs) though they are simple, it is very easy to not do these things. It's easy to forget them and it's even easier to just not do them even when we do remember them. So, how can we practically and humbly seek the welfare of others? I wanna give you guys five things and we'll go through each of them quickly. The first one is pray. Timothy was deeply focused on the Philippians even when he wasn't with them. That's why, again, Paul wanted to send him. And he prayed with Paul often for them. Paul starts the letter off pointing that out. We should learn from this example. Don't fall into the out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of mentality with your friends and loved ones. When someone is away from you, think upon them. Pray for them. You guys, in prayer, you are asking God, the creator and sovereign ruler over all things, to work for another person's good. Nothing you can do is more effective more powerful, or more important to that. You are going to the source of power for accomplishing good in that other person's life. There's nothing better that you can do to serve someone else than to pray for them to God. So do it. Second, initiate. Paul sent Timothy so that he could bless the Philippians. So being present with the people who, are, who you are caring for is so important. He just didn't want to, him to be praying for them at a distance. He wanted him to be with them. Paul was cheered by the, by the fact that he was gonna be sending Timothy to be with them. So initiate, be present with the people in your lives. Don't make people come to you. Go out of your way to spend time with them even when it's inconvenient for you. That communicates so much love because it shows that you value the people in your life and it shows that they are important to you. And I know some of you feel, maybe you're kind of on the other end of the spectrum, where you feel like you give much more than you receive in your relationships. Maybe you feel like you are the initiator already. My encouragement to you is if that is you, don't grow bitter Persevere, Continue to love and initiate even when it's not reciprocated. Don't allow your love towards the people in your life to become conditional towards them. Third, listen. How deeply you listen to someone is a good indication of how much you really love and care about them. What are your questions like to the people in your life? When you're hanging out with someone, maybe you're on a, when you're on a date with your spouse, what questions do you ask? Do they show that you're paying attention to what's going on in their life? Are you glancing at your phone a lot or are you doing other things when you're spending time with the other person? If you are, you're probably not listening well. Well, You're probably more focused on yourself than on the other person. So work on laying those distractions aside and take genuine interest in others. Seek to know the people in your life well. Think about what life is like in their shoes and ask them questions about it. It can be profoundly encouraging to the people in your life when you show that you want to hear from them and that you are really listening not that you just ask a question and things go in one, in, in one ear and out the other, but you're really listening genuinely to what they're saying. That shows concern for their welfare. Plus, it will help you so much when it comes to counseling and ministering to that other person. If you're really listening to their heart, you will be able to speak into their lives so much better than you would otherwise. So that was third, listen. Fourth, speak wisely. Again, none of these things should be groundbreaking or um, new to you guys. Caring for the welfare of others is not the same thing as making them happy all the time and affirming everything that they do. This is important because our society wants us to think that way. Our culture says to be concerned for someone else's welfare, you must affirm everything that they're doing. You must just say whatever needs to be said to make them happy in the moment. That's not actual love and concern for someone's welfare. Speaking wisely means using wisdom to follow Paul's command to admonish the idol encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. It's paying attention to the people in your life and discerning where they're at so that you can speak well into their life for the sake of their souls. On the one hand, we should be a church full of people who encourage one another with specific and sincere encouragements. If you see the Lord's grace in someone's life or you appreciate someone for a particular reason, don't hide that from them share it with them. And as a challenge, if you haven't encouraged your close friends or family in a while, make it a priority to do so in the next couple days. But on the other hand, we should also be a church full of people who are willing to say hard things to one another when it's necessary. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is is to correct a brother or sister if he or she is wayward and living in a way that is contrary to the gospel. So we need to be willing to do both things for the sake of their soul. Fifth, and finally, always rejoice, or persevere is another way I could put it. Sometimes we serve selfishly without even realizing it. And this is oftentimes tested when someone responds poorly or differently than we expect to something that we've done for them. What we can find is that we serve for the gratitude that the other person shows, not simply for the act of doing good for them. How do you respond when someone isn't happy with something that you've done for them? Do you rejoice anyway, feeling grateful for the opportunity to love them, or... Does your supposed love turn into annoyance or anger with them because they didn't respond in the way that you wanted them to? You are hoping for a huge thanks for them being overjoyed, for them being grateful, but maybe they just disregard it. Maybe they complain to you. Maybe they never recognize what gracious, kind thing you did for them. How do you respond in the, in that moment? Our joy should not be dependent upon others' responses to what we do for them. Some people may never appreciate what you do for them, but rejoice, in, rejoice anyway. That is what shows how selfless of an act it is when we're able to pour ourselves out for others who might never even recognize or appreciate what we're doing for them. So think about those five things in this way. I'm going to paint a picture of who I imagine Timothy to be, Um, because I I believe he would be the type of person who would exemplify and live out these five characteristics. I imagine he was a man who, if he were alive today, he would be the guy who, without without even being asked, would go over to your house and shovel, uh, shovel your driveway after a hard snow because you and your family are out of town and he didn't want you to have to come back to that. He would be the type of person who um, he'd always be looking for ways to help, not just doing what, what we ask of him. If you were struggling with something, he'd come over without hesitation. He'd sit with you and listen attentively without his phone in his hand. He'd be quick to encourage you in ways that show he's paying attention to your life. But he would also lovingly challenge you when you're hardening your heart with sin. And in all of that, he would make sure that you knew you were loved not only by him, but more importantly, by God. And he would do that by reminding you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Time with him, Mm time spent with him would point you to Jesus. And, maybe on a more selfish note, you'd probably appreciate he'd probably be a really good gift giver. In other words, he would be an incredible friend. Don't you want that kind of friend? Even better, even more importantly than that, the point of why we're looking at all of this morning, don't you want to be that kind of friend to the people in your life, make that a goal of yours, because this is where your joy will come from, pursuing that kind of life, pursuing that kind of service and love towards others. As you seek to be this kind of person, you will know a deeper joy than you have experienced before. The practices that I mentioned earlier might be hard. It isn't easy to be this kind of person but they're worth it. It is far more fulfilling to offer this kind of friendship to someone than to receive this kind of friendship. That, of course, begs a question, though. Where did Timothy, and therefore where can we, find the power and strength to live this way? How can we pursue selflessness and humility towards those around us? How can we stop thinking about ourselves and focusing on ourselves and concern ourselves with others how can we do that where did the power that timothy had to live this way where did it come from how did he become so commendable in this that's where we come to this third point the source of timothy's joy look with me again at verse 21 This is really the heart of the passage. Looking back at verse 21, it says, "'For they all seek their own interests, "'not those of Jesus Christ.'" A question that you might still have from when we looked at this verse earlier is why? I pointed out earlier that Paul treats our focus on the welfare of others as synonymous with seeking the interests of Christ. But why? how can our focus on others also be a demonstration of our devotion to Jesus Christ? How are those things not at odds with one another? This is where we have to remember that verses 19 through 24 are just a few verses in a much larger context. Look back with me at verses three through eight in chapter two. emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is why our devotion to others can also be a demonstration of our devotion to Jesus Christ. On one level, It can be an act of faithful obedience because we are seeking to be like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Yes, Timothy is a great example, but even he is imperfect. Jesus was not. And so when we are pursuing this sort of life, this life worthy of the gospel, we are emulating Jesus first and foremost. And so on one hand, that is why serving others is also serving Christ. But it goes deeper than that. Friends, we are able to pour ourselves fully into the welfare of others because Christ has done that for us. Because he has given himself for our well-being, we can give ourselves for others without thought or concern for ourselves. Think about it, this is where Christianity is unlike any other religion. We aren't like Muslims who try to do good to try to please Allah. And we aren't like Buddhists who try to be humble by detaching from the world. Those are joyless forms of humility. No, the Christian gospel is the message that we have all we need in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can devote ourselves to others and not just do it out of duty, but do it joyfully. It is hard to live selflessly. It is so easy, just thinking about myself, it is so easy to become self-centered. I'm doing that right now. I focus on my own worries, my own problems, my own desires, and I do it because I think I have to in some way. So often, I think I need to look out for myself because if I don't, no one else will. So I focus on me, in a sense, for self-preservation. I pursue my own interests and don't think about whether they're best for, for others. I pray for myself, not you guys. I withhold encouragement at times because I wish I was the one getting it. Again, I stop serving others because I want to be served I stop listening to people because I want the conversation I want the conversation to get to what I want to say not what I want what the other person's saying to me all of those reactions flow out of the belief that no one cares about my well-being so I need to that's how we all are we all think that way the gospel destroys that thought process, though. I want you to flip, um, if you can, flip to Hebrews 12. Um, I want us to look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, this is key, and this is so, it, it's so cool to reflect upon this um, in light of what we've already been talking about. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 say this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So even the author of Hebrews is recognizing persevering living this way, living a gospel-centered life, it's hard. We have to, we have to use endurance to run this race. It's not easy. But let's look at verse two. How do we do that? How do we walk with endurance? In other words, how do we walk with joy? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Redeemer, it can be our joy to lay down our lives for others because it was Jesus' joy to lay down his life for us. Do you see that in the passage? He was able to endure the cross because he was setting his eyes, as we set our eyes upon him, he was setting his eyes upon the coming joy, knowing that by going to the cross, he was bringing about our salvation and redemption he was able to endure endure the cross because of the joy he felt knowing that he was, he was seeking our welfare. He faced torture, humiliation, excruciating pain, and worst of all, he faced unimaginable loneliness and rejection from the heavenly Father. And he endured all of that for the joy of knowing that he was protecting you, that he was securing you in his arms. He endured it for the joy of knowing that he was working for your welfare for eternity. Friends, as I wrap up, know that our Savior, King, and God is always working for our good if we turn to him in repentance and faith. As surely as he makes the sun rise each morning, he is making sure that we are safe and secure in his arms through union with him. No one and nothing can snatch you away from him. If you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you cannot be safer than you already are. Nothing will happen to you that he will not use for your well-being. You don't need to be concerned about your own welfare because He is constantly watching over you for it. It doesn't always feel that way, but it's true. You have all that you need or could want in Him, so you are free to concern yourself with the interests of others and experience the joy that comes from doing so. You can offer yourself to them because you have nothing you need to earn anymore. Even better, you're able to experience the deep and abiding joy that comes from doing that because you know nothing, not even death, can truly harm you. Only someone who knows that, know, knows that they have nothing to lose, can live that way, that live that selflessly and do it with joy. So when we selflessly and joyfully serve and care for those around us, We are testifying to the truth of the gospel. So let's follow Timothy's example in that. Let's imitate him as he imitated Christ. Don't seek joy in yourself. If we are a church full of people trying to make themselves happy, we will be an unhappy congregation. No, let's be a church full of people trying to bless each other. Think how much joy we would experience if we were all doing that. Seek joy in doing good for others because Jesus finds joy in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for enduring the cross for us. And thank you for not just doing it as a duty but out of love, doing it joyfully. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for us so that we might sacrifice ourselves for others and experience the joy that you knew as you approached the cross. Help us to know that joy as well as we strive, as we strive to be humble selfless individuals who seek the welfare of those around us and not ourselves. Father, we need your spirit to help us do that. So we pray that he would come to us. Help us to follow you and to trust you. Help us to entrust our lives that you have joyfully sought our good. I pray all this in your name, amen.